welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. So in case you, you haven't met me, as Manuel said, I'm Scott Schaefer, and I, I serve on your elder board. My wife Renee and I have been here for about 10 years. This is our family, and it is a, just a pleasure and honor to, to speak to you, especially about the Psalms in our summer series. So I'm going to start with the uh, our scripture reading, it'll be the first 14 verses of Psalm 103, which I think you'll see on the screen, I believe. Is that true? That may not be true. I'll show you pieces of it later. How's that? Here's the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit and crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things so that my youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all of the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, before we're going to be in Psalm 103 this morning, and before I get started, I want to give you guys just a couple of references to a couple of books that you might be interested in. David, when he started us on this series a few weeks ago, talked a little bit about how the Psalms have become a normal part of his daily practice and how that has had power. And that happened to me as well, probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I started to read one psalm a day and spend some time meditating on that psalm, and I found it very, very beneficial. Two books that actually walked me into that practice, neither of them are about the psalms per se, but they're very powerful, and I wanted to give you those as recommendations. The first is called The Cloister Walk by Kathleen Norris. Kathleen Norris... uh, joined a monastery, which is weird because she's a woman and she's not a Catholic. So she became what is called an oblate. And some Catholic orders have a program or a structure where you can attach yourself to the order and live their life rhythms. You're not going to become a monk or a nun, but you're an oblate. And that's what Kathleen Norris did. Now, it turns out monastic orders live by the psalms. The psalms are the rhythm of their life. They are praying and singing and teaching the psalms throughout the day, every day. So the story is about her life in the monastery and and with the brothers, Um, but it's central to that whole story is the psalms, and it really got me intrigued about the power of the psalms. So that's why I recommend that one. This other book is very, very different. Darkness is My Only Companion by Catherine Green McCrite. Um, Darkness is My Only Companion comes from Psalm 88, which is a psalm of deep, deep distress. And Green McCrite uh, was, and I believe still is, an Anglican priest, 
and she was just living her life day to day, following Jesus, working as a pastor, until she had her second child. And after the birth of her second child, she descended into what she thought was a severe postpartum depression. What it turned out to be was the beginning of a lifelong bipolar disorder. So her book is about how to walk through significant mental illness with Jesus. And it's, it's one of the most beautiful books I've read. It's a little bit looking into the abyss, but many of our brothers and sisters struggle with severe mental illness. And this is just a beautiful story of how she did that. Key to her walk through all of this was the Psalms. So this is one of the few times where I've read a book and then did the work to track down the author and tell her thank you. It's just a marvelous book. So if, you, if you're interested in diving into the Psalms and, and would like some inspiration, there's two recommendations for you. So I'm going to talk about Psalm 103. And along the way, we're going to cover sex, money, power, plane crashes, the United States of America, demons, the proper use of fire, and what boundless love looks like. So I promise I'm not going to make you late for brunch. So that means all that and a bag of chips. That's where we're going. So I wonder, I won't ask for a show of hands, how many of you are fearful flyers? And I, oh, okay. And, and two are willing to admit it. All right. I think about half of us are feel fearful, fearful flyers. And I, wa- I was for a long time. I would find that some of my best prayer times were between the gate and the beginning of the runway. You know, you get in the plane, you've got no control over anything. Uh, You can't control where it goes, when it goes, how it goes. You don't even have awareness. You can't even tell what's actually going on. So you're kind of isolated, just a great time to spend with God. So I would literally, I would pray on every flight and just ask God to call me and, and to keep me safe. And in the process of all that, I ran across a verse in Psalm 34, the Lord encamps around those who fear him. I love that. I loved it immediately. The Lord encamps around those who fear him. And as Colleen said last week, fear in in the Bible does not mean afraid of. It means awe and wonder at who God is and how well he knows us and how much he loves us. So when I, when I hit upon that prayer, that became my pre-flight prayer. And it's a pre-flight conversation. Every flight I take, that psalm is a part of it. And I will pray, God, you know where I'm going today. If you want me to go home, I'm going home. If you want me to make it to my destination, I'm going to make it to my destination. Whether it's a business trip or going home, whatever's going to happen there, you're with me. Um, you're in charge today. And if you want me to come see Jesus face-to-face today... That's, that's your way and your will, and I'm okay with that. So it became, those pre-flight prayer times actually became something I looked forward to, and I still do. So now the beginning of a flight, instead of being, you know, kind of anxious, it's kind of cool. So one day, I was in Phoenix. I used to go to Phoenix a, a bunch, been there dozens of times, uh, and I did my work thing, and it was time to come home. So I go to the airport, and I get on the airplane, and I got a window seat. And good, we're going home. Take, I, I prayed that prayer. God, you know where I'm going today. I'm so thankful. Um, take off. Uh, all is well. And about 15 minutes later, three things happened in very, very quick succession. First, there was a loud sound of rushing air. And then my ears popped really hard. 
And then the oxygen mask came down in front of my face. So I went, oh, hmm, this is, this is different. <laughs> the stewardess wasn't kidding. And I knew immediately what happened. The plane decompressed. That means there's a, a structural failure in the fuselage somewhere. Um, don't know how, how bad it is, but that's what's happened. You know, that's why the air left left the airplane. I was not panicked. I mean, I was concerned. That kind of thing gets your attention. But I was not panicked because the first thing that came to my mind was the conversation Jesus and I had just had 15 minutes ago. And I literally said, Lord, okay, you know where I'm going. You know where this thing's going. Now, he was gracious enough to have me sitting in a part of of the airplane where I could actually see what had happened. About six rows ahead of me, the, the ceiling of the airplane, if you look at the ceiling, it's, a, it's just a plastic panel. Well, it had, dro- it had fallen down. And it had fallen down because the top of the airplane, the fuselage, had cracked open. There's, you know, a, like a four-inch crack in the ceiling. I'm like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see the window sticker on this thing, but I don't think sunroof was a part of it. So, but it, that was actually God's grace because knowing something about how metals fail the cool thing about that crack is it was not growing. And so I was pretty confident I was, I, was, I was actually going home that day. I'd probably be late. but And that's what happened. Everybody was okay. So what, what the, the advantage of what happened to me was prior to that incident, I had oriented myself to a, one key truth. And that is the Lord encamps around those who fear him. I had not just before that flight, but many, many, many times I had oriented myself to that reality, that truth that's stated in Psalm 34. I knew that he was going to guide and protect and supply everything I needed, even in that situation. And in a weird way, nothing important had changed. So orientation is what I want to talk about today. We believe all kinds of things. We are oriented towards all kinds of things, both large and small. And belief and orientation, they're so closely related, they're pretty much functionally the same thing. Each of us has developed orientations to many things, and I'll give you some examples of big things um, that we all have an orientation towards. The United States of America. We all have some orientation towards our nation, what we think it's about, what we think is good, what we think is bad, what we think it's for, what we want to have happen. Our bank accounts, almost all of us have a well-developed orientation toward our bank accounts. Immigrants, most of us have an orientation towards immigrants. We have an attitude and a set of beliefs about immigrants. Education, most of us, and certainly if you're a parent, you've got an orientation towards what education is for, what good education is, how critical education is or is not. And final example, your own worth as a person. It's a very deep one. But we all have a set of beliefs about our own value as a person. Your soul as it stands right now is made up of thousands upon thousands of these orientations. Some are large, some are small, and a fair number of them are massive. And we are constantly orienting and reorienting. We're constantly being oriented and reoriented. And some of our orientations align with the truth. They align with reality, what's really happening in the universe. And some of our orientations do not align with reality. Two parties are intensely interested in your orientations. One is God. 
God determines actual realities. God is actual reality. God determines what's actually true, what's actually needed, what's actually just, what's actually healthy, and what's actually corrosive. The other party, of which there are many, are your enemies. Your enemies, these may be demonic beings, they may be power-hungry people, or they may just be thousands of storytellers who want to misguide you because they want to use you for something. Your enemies want you disoriented, and they use many tools to, dis- to disorient you. They use pleasure. They use pride. They'll use loneliness and acceptance. They'll use charm and violence. They'll use accomplishments and failures. They'll use pleasures, and very, very often they use noise. So disorientation is a thing we have to deal with. Disorientation itself is not sin, but every sin involves some disorientation from reality. So let me take an example of an orientation that's massive and elaborate, and just randomly, let's talk about sexuality. That wasn't, that wasn't super random. I don't know if you guys have noticed lately, but sex is super popular right now. Now, I'm not, what I want to talk about here is not sexual orientation, I want to talk about something more fundamental, your orientation towards sexuality. A person's orientation towards sexuality comes before their sexual orientation. The culture's orientation towards sex is this. This is a simplification, but not by very much. Sex exists primarily for my pleasure and to be my authentic self, to be real and whole as a human being. I need to freely act on my sexual desires. Now, this is really easy to believe. There are a lot of attractions to this orientation. The problem is that it is dangerously misleading. Saying that sex exists for my pleasure, that is true. But that is like saying that fire exists so we can make s'mores. That is also true. But to say that fire exists so we can make s'mores... Ignores the fact that fire has massive power to both create and destroy. Without fire, human existence is not possible. But when handled poorly, fire can destroy on an enormous scale. So I think fire is a pretty good analog for sexuality. When the heralds of our culture, and by heralds I mean our politicians, our leaders, our educators, our thought leaders, our influencers, our media people... When the heralds of our culture tell you that sex exists for pleasure and that to be your authentic self, you should act freely on every sexual desire, they are disorienting you. They are misguiding you about the nature of sex, the power of sex, the dangers of sex, and the deeper beauties of sex as God created it and designed it to be. So I've wondered... If, if sexuality and fire are analogs, why isn't fire controversial? Nobody argues about fire. I think it's this. The misuse of fire destroys violently and quickly. The damage caused is very visible. It's pretty hard to ignore, and therefore it's pretty hard to disagree about the problems that occur when you misuse fire. On the other hand, the misuse of sex, sexual sin, generally, it corrodes slowly and quietly, and that can be ignored for long periods of time. 
So why use sexuality as an example? Because it is an elaborate and very powerful orientation that propels what we do, who we are, and who we're becoming. If practiced with care, it brings great good to humans. If misused, it brings extensive corrosion and damage to humans. And your enemies know that by its very nature, your sexuality is a very fertile place to take advantage of you, no pun intended. But it's a very powerful way to take advantage of you. So thinking about these, these large and elaborate orientations, here's an extra credit assignment um, that you can take home and do. If you want to grow, here's a simple path to growth. Pick one of these major orientations, uh, money, sex, power, self, and God. You already have an orientation to each of these things. Take your favorite one and fill it in and ask God, what is my orientation towards blank? And then do the work of staying with that question and listening to God over time. Your orientation to these kind of things did not spring up overnight. They were built over time. And it is over time that we are reoriented and healed. There's great power in doing this exercise. So the obvious question in all this is, okay, how do we become properly oriented to that which is true and good? The short answer, which we'll we'll develop a little bit, but the short answer is, listen to God. God always speaks truth. God always speaks the truth. God is reality. Listen to him. He has provided detailed guidance on how to listen to him. Becoming reoriented from our fallen states to reality, that is the transformation that the Old Testament And the New Testament talk about constantly, and that is, that transformation is what it means to follow Jesus. A a verse we all know, Romans 12, it's just one of the verses that talks about it. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's hard to hear from God if you don't go where he is speaking, but he has given us rhythms and practices that show us how to do that. So I want to talk about three key rhythms very briefly that uh, we get from God's word and from the history of God's people that can help. And those, those three practices are, next slide, church prayer and scripture. And you can guess, I don't like this slide because I think what happens a lot of times, it happens to me, it goes right over my head. Because I look at that and I think, church, yeah, church, church is critical. Well, I'm, I'm here, right? It's Sunday and I, I showed up. Uh, prayer, yeah, prayer, prayer's all over the Bible. I know prayer's important. I, I, it doesn't work super well. I got a lot of bouncing off the ceiling. But yeah, prayer, I'm, I'm in for prayer. And in Scripture, yeah, man, no lie. That's our foundation. We're evangelicals. Scripture's the foundation. So I, but I, you know, and I'm getting more head knowledge, but it's not changing my life. So I don't like that list so much. I like this list. Um, Not just church, but living and operating in the body of Christ. Not just prayer, but effective prayer. And not just scripture, but being mastered by the text. So we could do a sermon series on each of these. And obviously, I won't try to do that this morning. Um, And we, we actually are in the midst of each of these in some way. And there will be much more about all of them in the future. I'm going to talk about the first two in like one sentence. And then I want to, I want to get into being mastered by the text as we look at Psalm 103. So, um, and I want to say for a Christ follower, these things are not the master class. This is normative Christianity. 
This is following Christ. Um, and if, if that's not your experience, come talk to me. Come talk to leadership. Um, that should be your normative experience. These three things work together. And when you see them start to work together, it's, you're never going back. Once you see how they, they synergize off each other and feed off each other, there's no way you don't want to live in that space all the time. So, but I can't talk about all three of them. So um, really quickly, living and operating in the body of Christ, if you're just going to church, uh, just to be blunt, you're not actually living and operating in the body of Christ. You're not exercising your gifts you're not exerting power, which is key. You're not co-laboring with others. You're not available to be transformed by the gifts of others. So it's an interesting note on this. The elder board this year has spent a lot of time on our priorities. There is so much that Oak Hills does. There's so much more that Oak Hills can do. What's our priority? What are, what are we going to focus on? We can't do it all at once. So we did the super brilliant thing. We made a list of things and ordered it in priority order. The, the top priority that your elder board believes for you, our church, is to help you understand better your agency in the kingdom of God and your agency in this body. Agency means to exert power, and you absolutely should be exerting power. So that's, uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, more to come. Effective prayer, I'll say less, even less about that because you guys have heard me talk about this before. But there are effective and ineffective ways to pray. If you would like to see effective prayer in action, I have two invitations for you, which you've heard before. Every other Wednesday, we do community prayer. It's an hour long. It's structured. It's not, you know, you're, it's, it's, it's good. It's not ineffective or boring. Um, you, get, you know my favorite quote is, nobody wants to come to your prayer meeting because they've been to one before. That's not what we do on Wednesday nights. You come, you do not have to pray. It's on Zoom, so it's super easy to show up. Um, but you'll, you'll be interested in what you see, and you can just listen silently. Many people do that. But come and see. The other, uh, even easier way is pre-service prayer. Every Sunday, 15 minutes before the first service, whoever wants to gathers up front to pray for what God is going to do in the building that morning. And it's, it's just like Wednesday prayer. It's structured and just like Wednesday prayer, we're not doing it to think good thoughts. We're gathering to do spiritual work. And it's like spiritual work in 15 minutes, you would be surprised. It's super cool. So you can come see that. So let's focus briefly on being mastered by the text. So what I mean is uh, to capture more and more of it, but not just for head knowledge. Um, I read a ton of scripture throughout my life, and all I was gaining was head knowledge. It was not affecting my soul. It was not changing my behavior. You want to be mastered by the text. You want to interact with it in such a way that it enters your being and increasingly affects your behavior. And there's three things you can do um, to do that. One is meditating on scripture. So meditation is simply, I think I need the next slide. Meditation is simply uh, intentional thinking and intentional listening. There's nothing spooky about meditation. You meditate on things now. They may just not be godly things. But meditate on scripture. Secondly, discuss it with God. This means asking him to show you what these passages that that you're hanging out in mean in your life. And again, do the work of listening for what he says. Track your questions to God and then do the work of staying with the question until he answers it. Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. 
He's very serious. It's just what he does. And the third is take a passage that speaks to you and just employ it. Just use it. I talked about how I'm using Psalm 34. And yes, I do use it before every flight. But because of how that psalm and that prayer has spoken back to me over the years, I'm using it in many, many more situations. There's no situation where the fact that God is encamped around me is not helpful. So let's look at Psalm 103 specifically. I want to, I want to point out three short pieces in it um, and give you some ideas of where you can look for your own orientations and what God might be saying about them. So the first one is just verse 1. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Why does God tell us to praise him? Does he really need us to tell him he's great? The answer is an obvious, no, he does not. We need us to rehearse and remind ourselves of all of God's goodness. Praising God is the uber reorientation. It is always, re- you're reorienting towards God and who he is. That means you're reorienting towards reality. So it is key to praise him and to do it often. In verses 3 through 6, uh, there is so much packed in here. Who, meaning God, forgives all your sins. Stop there. What is your orientation right now towards God's forgiveness of your sins? Do you know that you are completely forgiven? Or is there doubt there? Do you know that God's forgiving and yet there's these sins that were really, really bad? Or there's these sins that I'm still struggling with? Just look at your orientation towards forgiveness and then ask God if that is his orientation towards your forgiveness. And heals all your diseases. Let's stop there. What is your orientation towards healing? I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm noticing the body decays. The body declines. Um, There's struggles there. There's sickness there. We see healing in Scripture. We see healing in real life. And we see places where healing does not occur in Scripture. We see places where healing does not occur in real life. And yet here, the psalmist says, God will heal all your diseases. So what is your orientation towards healing? What mysteries are in there that you don't understand? I have mysteries in there I don't understand. He redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. A crown is a signifier. A crown is a symbol that identifies the nature of the person that that symbol is upon. God has signified you with his love and compassion. It means the greatest, most accurate identity that you have, your most real identity, is the beloved of God. You are crowned with his love and compassion. Is that your orientation towards God's love? Um, a good friend of mine who's sitting here but won't be named said something that really got me. He said, I've spent years trying to convince myself that God loved me. And I'm like... Uh, yeah, I, I'm doing the same thing. It's an orientation issue. God is extremely clear about his love. Um, God works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. If you think about your orienta- orientation towards the oppressed, does this fit? Does your orientation towards the oppressed match the fact that God is working for ju- justice and righteousness for them all the time? 
These are the things that God does regularly, day in and day out. And these are the things that our enemy does not want us to think about or notice and will regularly discourage us and try to disorient us from those realities. So finally, I want to look at verses 11 through 14. This is where the psalmist goes up to 30,000 feet to answer the question about everything that's come before in the psalm. Why does God treat us this way? Why is God so good? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. I can go outside any time of the day or night and look up and have a visceral reorientation to God's love, the truth about God's love. I get inches, I get miles, I get light years. And all i got to do is look up and realize that's far. That is big. That's how much he loves me. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Again, the geography to me is visceral. How far, I know how far west goes, it goes forever. I know how far east goes, it goes forever. How far has my sin been removed from me? Infinitely far. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Verses 11 through 14, that is the capstone. That is God's orientation towards us. His love knows no bounds. His forgiveness knows no bounds. And he is our compassionate father. You could spend a long time in Psalm 103 asking at almost any verse, how am I oriented with respect to this truth? Would you join me in prayer? Master, thank you that you have always been for us. You've always desired us. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you so much for the promise of transformation. That promise that you will complete the good work that you have begun in each of us. This life with you is marvelous, Lord, because of who you are. Amen. So I'll send you guys out with a benediction, which is such an honor to give a benediction over you guys, my family. Before I do, I want to remind you of the Asian Fellowship. Oh, no, I don't want to remind you that. Come back for the Asian Fellowship lunch at 11. That's what I'll tell you. Next service, I'll tell them that it's coming right up. Um, So hear this benediction, family. Go from here seeking God's help to know yourself better and let him move you closer to and then deeper into all the glory that he has planned for you. The Lord be with you. Have a great Sunday.